0: From Brown Cow Studios in Montana, this is News Nerds, the news podcast. It's a very rainy day here in Montana. This week, we have Bridget Uzel on the show. She works for My Village, a group of small daycare options in Montana and Colorado. She talks about how My Village is coping in the coronavirus pandemic, what she does there, and more about My Village's mission. Also, the wildlife journal segment on this week's wildlife journal segment we talk about the large blue butterfly and how they have recovered in britain i'm ezra graham and you are listening to news nerds the news podcast stay with us we have a great show for you today And here is a very cool story that I found in an article that was sent to me by one of my listeners. Undercover in southern Sweden, a group of creative people have been sneaking tiny living space installations for the local population of mice into streets and other public places. Using objects made into small but beautiful mouse-sized living spaces, the secretive group called Anonymous sneaks the installations in by night. The group installs the projects throughout Sweden, France, and on the Isle of Man. Anonymous has placed installations such as an amusement park and a tiny barber shop. So far, the group has placed 25 of these tiny and very detailed pieces, including postage stamps for paintings and a mo- matchbox for a desk. Members of the group who wish to be Anonymous said to HuffPost, there is no particular meaning behind it, more than that we try to create something that we ourselves would all have loved to stumble upon as children. We have different people for different tasks, some are better at woodwork, some at and some at graphic design, and so on. If you really start to dig into it, you might be able to tell which sceneries that have the same main creator. The stories of the British author Beatrix Potter and the Swedish author Astrid Lindgren inspired two artists to create Anonym House in 2016. Because of so much detail in these artists' work, their pieces are not quick to make. The group says that the process has sped up considerably since their first creation, which took about three months, to design and build. Even though five of the installations have been vandalized, the group remains determined to keep making the little beauties. They say, said, we try not to focus on the person who destroys, but rather on the hundreds of people who enjoyed them and con- contributed to them. The nicest thing is always to see a crowd hunched down exploring what we built. When strangers t- start talking to each other, is really nice to see. And I thought that was a great story. You can see all of their work on Instagram, and in the show description, I'll give you a link to all of their Instagram photos. just a second we're going to go to my interview with Bridget but first a message from me and then the latest global news hey news nerds listeners it's Ezra here yeah, you're stuck with me for the rest of the show i'm ezra by the way and I, i've told you this before uh many times but i'm going to tell you one more time you can go to anchor.fm slash slash message to send me a voice message that could be on the next episode of newsnerds and i've told you this many times before but i love getting your mail and particularly voice messages because i can put them on my podcast and i can hear your voice on an episode of my podcast which is very exciting for me and you so send in your voice message anchor.fm slash news slash message some news regarding Amazon. As many small businesses struggle with challenges due to our pandemic, the online shopping giant Amazon is hiring and hiring and hiring. Today, Wednesday, September 9th, Amazon announced it has thousands of job openings for different positions. Across the nation, about 33,000 corporate and technology jobs for Amazon are open. An Amazon spokesperson wrote to CBS Money Watch by email and said, The average annual compensation from these new jobs is $150,000, including salary and stock awards. And that's it for the latest news. Bridget Uzel works for My Village in Bozeman, Montana, and she joins us now. Welcome.
1: Thank you. Hello. So, can you tell me what your job is? Sure thing. Um, So, I work for an organization called My Village. Right now, we are located in the states of Montana and Colorado, and it is a network of people who are interested in creating small child cares out of their home for either six kids or 12 kids. And my role throughout most of 2019 was working in the lab school here in Bozeman, right on Main Street. And it was in the back part of the house where our headquarters is is located. And so I opened that school and I first taught six kids with just myself. And then I hired on another teacher and we were able to go up to 12 kids with the other teacher. Um, In early 2020 of this year, I actually moved out of working in the classroom. And now my role with My Village is called content manager. And basically I work with a team of people to create all the stuff that all of our educators use to teach. So that could be everything from a hand-washing poster, like how many seconds you spend washing your hands, to, you know, more of the curriculum and learning materials that educators use.
0: So what made you decide to take your job at My Village and go into the teaching sector?
1: Yeah, good question. Um, Really, the people who, who founded the company are two women named Erica and Beth, and they are just really incredible women and leaders and are very smart and are very good at what they do. So I had coffee with Erica in Bozeman and got to know a little bit more about her and the company. And it really excited me that they are two moms, they have kids themselves that have struggled with finding really high quality childcare. And I know how important that is because I have three of my own kids and you know, every time I went back to work after each of them being a baby, that was really important to me to find excellent childcare. So it just it it was a combination of meeting really amazing, interesting people who were doing something that was very important to me and very important to them as well. So that's why I joined the organization of my village. And then the chance to teach and work directly with kids. I was just really excited about the opportunity to spend all day with kids instead of behind a computer screen. <laughs> so I, I gave that a shot when they decided to open up, yeah, that little school in Bozeman. So w-
0: what where are the locations in Colorado and Montana?
1: Um, all over. So we are really trying to learn about all different sorts of, you know, neighborhoods and experiences of different families and different people in different types of locations. So we, we have people in downtown Denver, Aurora, Colorado Springs, I think up near Fort Collins. I know in Montana, we have more rural parts of Montana, and then educators in downtown Bozeman or Missoula too
0: could you tell me a little bit more about what my village is
1: and how it's evolved great question how it's evolved so my village the the mission of my village is to really harness the power of community among people who want to open these high quality child care learning spaces in their homes and I know we'll talk about COVID maybe a little bit later, but what's interesting with the impact of COVID is now everybody's learning in the home, as opposed to before COVID hit, the majority of people are learning outside the home. So now how we define learning space could be everything from a group of third graders with someone who has their own third grader, who wants to have everybody learning out of their own kitchen, or it could be a group of two year olds. So basically the whole goal of my village is to create support materials so that people can run these little you know, small schools and these little businesses out of their home where they're either taking care of kids and focusing on childcare or maybe doing something more school related and specific to supporting kindergarten or something like that. Oh, and then how it's evolved. Let me actually just expand on that a little bit. When we started, we thought we might make a lot of materials for people who already had programs open, but then we learned that kind of the best uh, match for our model is people who are brand new people who maybe are in a different career and want to switch careers so that they can spend maybe more time at home with their own kids or their grandkids or something like that. So that was a surprise to us that the people that we found to be the most successful uh, with our tools were people who were looking to do something totally different from maybe a job in human resources or a job being a principal or even a job in some sort of you know, in the tech industry, and they just wanted something completely different, and then they wanted our support in order to make that jump.
0: So I know that the sandbox in Bozeman is a little bit unusual, so how is the sandbox, the My Village Preschool in Bozeman, different from other My Village Preschools in Montana and Colorado?
1: Well, we have a really high percentage of my village employees' kids in the program because it's attached right there to the office space. It's also different because it's not in someone's home. So I thought about maybe launching it in my own home but uh, my husband was not up for that and so instead we found office space that could have the preschool attached to the office space. So, really, most of our programs are all in someone's home and they're using their kitchen and their living room or maybe their basement, something like that. Another way it's different is it's a program for 12 kids, and most of our programs are the smaller size, so sticking to the six to one ratio as opposed to hiring then another employee.
0: Didn't you say that most My Village preschools were not, didn't have a name and were called like, uh...
1: Brittany Butts, my village. Oh, yeah, yeah. That's, yeah, that's a, that's a great question. So, most of our programs go by this naming convention, Miss Bridget's Village, or Miss Rose's Village, or Miss Sandra's Village. And when we flipped into that naming convention, the sandbox was already established, and I was leaving the lead teacher position and I was becoming the content manager. So for two reasons, we kept the name My Village Sandbox. One is that it's not attached to the person as much as our other programs are. Like, you know, Miss Sandra's village is never, she's never gonna sell her base. Well, it's going to be unlikely that she's going to sell her basement business to someone else in a year. (laughs) So that's why we left the My Village Sandbox.
0: So, in the coronavirus pandemic, how has the Sandbox and the other My Village preschools changed?
1: Um, Well, we have a lot of different safety precautions. So, for instance, you know, the nap room used to be a whole bunch of kids right next to each other all sleeping on their nap mats. And now we have those a lot more spaced out. Children over two wear masks, all adults at all times wear masks. So that includes parents picking up and dropping off. A big one is is the separation of people coming into the learning space. Um, And we have found that this is something that can really decrease the risk of transmission of of, um, coronavirus. So that means that when parents come to the door, They sign in at the door, they say goodbye at the door, and then only the kid comes into the learning area. And they're also in a mask. So if, and the reason for that is just in case that parent might have coronavirus and not know it, then they're not introducing that into the learning space, but only their child's going in there. Um, So yeah, a whole bunch of precautions with that, teaching kids about what six feet apart looks like and is. Um, You know, there's, reality to be aware of and I don't think you're ever going to keep one and a half year old six feet apart at all times but everything you can do to teach kids about that and be proactive um, we have a whole lot of support materials for teachers to then use that in their classrooms.
0: It must be hard having kids over two wear a mask at, every day at preschool. So how are you telling? I mean, and teaching kids what coronavirus is and why you need to have a mask on. And it's hard to wear a mask, especially if you're two. So have you had kids yeah. who just don't want to wear a mask?
1: Absolutely. So this is all up to the discretion of um, the. The educator and and you know being based in reality as to how that's going. So some kids are going to be able to wear a mask here and there, or be able to keep it on longer. Some kids, it's going to be a huge distraction and negative experience. And um, you know, there's no forcing them to wear it. It's just a recommendation. Hopefully, that kids to and over. And yeah, we're definitely talking about it and talking about what what is happening when people talk and sneeze and how that's the coronavirus. And I think the idea is just decreasing the risk. So if half of the kids over two wear the mask for half the day, that's decreasing some of the risk compared to no one wearing a mask at all. So I think the idea is out there. And then however it, however it ends up translating into reality is up to that group of kids and that teacher.
0: This is Bridget Uzel. She works for my village in Bozeman, and uh, she joined us over Zoom. Thank you so much.
1: Thank you, Ezra. Such uh, Thanks for being interested in this topic.
0: Copies. And now it's time for Wildlife Journal. In 1979, the Fengerus arion, or the large blue butterfly, was officially declared extinct in Britain. But as ecological associations and private trusts worked, they created the world's largest and most successful insect conservation program, and from 1984 to 2008, they witnessed the large blue return to 30 previously occupied and entirely new breeding sites. Most recently, conservationists recorded 750 butterflies emerging from the one- 1,100 larvae that had been planted in Minchinhampton and Rodborough Commons in Gloucestershire. I hope I uh, pronounced those locations right, and if I didn't, please email me. None of these butterflies had lived in the area for 150 years. Now these butterflies have been confirmed to be laying eggs in the wild. Richard Evans, an area ranger for the Commons, said, quote, Creating the right conditions for this globally endangered butterfly to not only survive, but to hopefully thrive has been the culmination of many years' work. Butterflies are such sensitive creatures, and with the large blue's particular requirements, they are real barometers for what is happening with our environment and the changing climate. Two species that the large blue depends on are red ants and wild thyme. Because of this, scientists have had to arrange protection for these two species. In the statement, David Simcox, research ecologist and co-author of the Commons Management Plan, said, In the summer when the ants are out foraging, nature performs a very neat trick. The ants are deceived into thinking that the parasitic larva of the large blue is one of their own and carry it off to their nest. It's at this point that the caterpillar turns from herbivore to carnivore, feeding on ant grubs throughout the autumn and spring until it is ready to pupate and emerge the following summer. When the Butterfly Conservation Trust finished restoring large blue habitat in the Polden Hills in Somerset, over 100,000 wild thyme plants on seven different sites were planted and 30 acres of shrub habitat for the red ants were enhanced. In 2019, there were 10 large blue breeding sites altogether, a step up from six in 2017, according to the magazine Butterfly. And that's it for Wildlife Journal. Let's see where everybody is listening in from. Last week, we had the surprise of Virginia being in first place. And this week, I can now say that Virginia is still in first place. But this week, with 8% of all News Nerds listeners, as last week, they had 7% of all News Nerds listeners. And with second place, we still have Ohio and California. They both have 6% of all News Nerds listeners. And with third place, New Mexico and Connecticut, with 4% of all News Nerds listeners. Behind them, Florida with 2%, and Utah, Texas, Vermont, New York, Oregon, New Jersey, Alaska, and more. And let's go to our next News Nerds segment. And now let's go into by the numbers where we keep track of how many COVID-19 cases and deaths there are in the United States and in the whole world combined. So we have global deaths reaching 900 thousand, as well as uh, 30 million global cases. And we have about 190,000 United States deaths. We're fast approaching 200,000 deaths because of COVID-19 in the United States. And meanwhile, we have about 6,300,000 United States cases of COVID-19. This is all according to the COVID-19 dashboard by the Center for Systems Science and Engineering at Johns Hopkins University. And that's it for By the Numbers. That's it for this week's episode of News Nerds. Thank you, Bridget, for being on this week's episode. You can go to our website, that's newsnerdshost.wixsite.com podcast to listen to past episodes of News Nerds and Cow Pies, The Bloops and Blunders from Brown Cow Studios. I'm Ezra Graham, and we'll be back next week with another episode of News Nerds.